0: It's a long way to Tipperary Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 44. It's good to be back from my brief little summer vacation. Uh, I did a ton of research during the time off, which should set things up quite nicely for the rest of the year. Also, because I have yet to really realize how bad I am at predicting things, there won't be just two episodes on the Italian front like I predicted. Instead, it's three or four, and I don't really want to commit on that number quite yet. That means there is a whole cascading effect on my schedule, but since you don't know the exact schedule, you probably won't notice. I'm mostly just putting this notice at the beginning of this episode, so that listener Brad knows that while the Naval episodes will probably be delayed, they are coming, I promise. I would also like to thank Edmund from Texas and William from Washington for their donations during the break. I burned through quite a bit of the donation fund for sources for both this year and the next, so, you know, it's really nice to have a refill. I will also like to thank the seven people who have uh, reviewed the show on iTunes over the last month. Uh, reviews are the best way for people to find out about the show. So on to the topic for today. You may remember that we discussed Italy's entry into the war way back in episode 23, and they would be one of the first new entries into the war after 1914 to make a big difference. We will start this episode by doing a brief refresher on how they ended up in the war, followed by an introduction to the Italian military leader, General Luigi Cadorna. We will then check in with first the Italian troops, and then with the troops that they would be facing on the Asanzo front, by looking at what the Austrian leaders had been able to scrape together for their third front before finally digging into the area which they would be fighting. Which would actually be extremely difficult to dig in, because it's very rocky. One of the sources for this episode is The White War by Mark Thompson, who starts with a line that I I think puts things in perspective nicely. In Italy, the names Isonzo and Carso still resonate like the Somme, Passchendaele, Gallipoli, or Stalingrad. And with that quote, that hopefully gets everybody in the proper mindset, let's get going. Italy had only become a kingdom in 1860, and wasn't fully united until 1870, when the kingdom was able to take over for the Pope in Rome. This was a big step for the Italian peninsula, which hadn't been fully united since the fall of the Roman Empire. Before Italy came into the war on May the 20th, they were a participant in a long series of events where both sides tried their best to woo them into the war on their side. These events were quarterbacked by Prime Minister Antonio Salandra, who could have went either way, really, depending on who gave him the best deal. In the end, it came down to the simple fact that the Allies were able to offer more to Italy than the Central Powers were. Italy wanted Austro-Hungarian land, near the Julian Alps, across the border from northeastern Italy. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, of course, did not want to give them this land, and it was pretty much the end of the conversation at that point. War was declared on May 20, 1915 on Austria-Hungary, but not Germany. It would be several years, which is quite some time, obviously, until Italy was officially at war with Germany, which I always find to be an interesting fact. On May the 20th, the Italian parliament ratified the declaration of war, and it was officially on. Two days later, that same body would give much greater power to the executive branch of the government and the military, giving them the ability to force any law concerning, quote, defense of the state, maintenance of public order, and the urgent needs of national economy, end quote. That is a pretty wide scope and it would set Italy up to have one of the most powerful military leaders of any country during the war. The Italian leaders didn't go into the war without at least some way to drum up support from the population. And to do this, they tapped into a concept called Italia in Redenta, or Unredeemed Italy. This was the movement within Italy that wanted to see the return of provinces in the northern section that were currently under the command of Austro-Hungarian occupation. These areas had large Italian-speaking populations, and many Italians felt that these areas rightly belonged to Italy, even though they had never been part of the Kingdom of Italy. The areas were centered around the Adriatic port of Trieste, and the area around the city. This was part of the larger movement in the earlier 20th century, of ethnicities either being part of their own nations, as in the Balkans, or being returned to their home countries, in the case of Trieste. From everything I have read, the Italian in Redenta sort of movement, and how the politicians of Italy used it, played a similar role in Italian society as Alsace-Lorraine played in French society during the war. It was ever-present during early in the war and used by propaganda all the time, but after the initial onrush of the war, it probably didn't play a huge part in continuing support for the war from the actual citizens of the country. Another side benefit of the war for the Italian country was its use as a unifying factor. Just a few decades earlier, the Italian peninsula had been the home of many different small countries, and now they were all, at least on paper, unified. The Italian politicians saw the conscription of large numbers of men as a way to unify the regions. To accomplish this, they set up a system where units were made up of troops from two different regions. These men were then combined and sent to a third region for training. I think this is a very smart way for a young nation to try and bring its men together from different areas, get them to interact, and try to uh, foster a feeling of being unified. Before we go any further in this episode, it's imperative that we discuss the leader of the Italian army for most of the war, General Luigi Cadorna. Luigi Cadorna was born in 1850 and entered military academy at the age of 16. His father was Count Raphael, who had led an army that had tried to take Trieste from the Austrians during the Unification Wars, so there's a family legacy in the region. After the academy, Luigi was slowly promoted, making major general in 1898. When Cadorna became the commando supremo of the Italian army, he would enjoy a huge amount of power. Maybe even more than Joffre had in France. Cadorna was nominally, but not really, under the command of the Prime Minister and the King, and he would enjoy this power until nineteen seventeen, when the disaster at Caporetto would finally bring about his downfall. Through the two years of his command, he would be stationed just seventeen miles from the front, although he would almost never visit it, and would in fact give little thought to the situation that the troops were in in the front when ordering his attacks. When appointed as the commander, Cordona promised a rapid breakthrough and a swift victory he thought his troops would easily break through the austrian defenses in the mountains and march straight through the lubljana gap which led directly to the flatlands of austria-hungary and hence right to vienna where the war would end very rapidly of course i will say that i'm quite glad that i don't have to say the lubljana or something like that gap again because that word's pretty hard to say Cadorna planned to achieve these goals with attacks very similar to what was seen on all fronts during the opening months of the war. In 1888, Cadorna had released a pamphlet that he called Frontal Attack and Tactical Training, which he was quite proud of. In this little pamphlet can be seen his entire philosophy that he would put into place once the war started in 1914. Most of its contents were non-revolutionary and shared by most of the generals around the world at the time of its publication. It was very committed to the compact infantry offensive that would be seen often during the first few months of the war. The most relevant quote that we will discuss over the next few weeks is this, The offensive is profitable, and almost always possible, even against mountainous positions that appear to be impregnable, thanks to dead ground that permits A, the advance under cover, and B, deployment toward the flanks or weak points unseen by the enemy. If the defender holds the crest, he will not see. If he descends to the lower ground, his retreat will be very difficult. It is often possible to use diverse lines of fire, obtaining the participation of successive ranks in the attack." Throughout all of the pamphlet, very little is said about the defensive or how to properly defend territory. Cadorna believed very strongly, just like so many others, that it was only the offensive that would win the war. In 1915, Cadorna would actually have 25,000 copies of this document printed out and distributed to his Italian officers, but he made a few changes first. In what I find quite the head-scratcher, and I can't quite figure out how he thought this was correct, these small changes basically just claimed that the action on the Western Front in 1914 and 15 actually confirmed his beliefs in these like densely packed infantry attacks, instead of discounting them like everybody knows that they did. massed infantry without the aid of huge amounts of artillery would be sent right into the teeth of the defenders on the Italian front. And it wasn't like Cadorna didn't know what had happened in the attacks on the Western Front. Several Italian military attachés had sent back very detailed reports about the events on the Western Front since the start of the war. But even with this piece of evidence, Cadorna was still confident that his troops would succeed where others had failed. All that Italian troops needed was enthusiasm and high morale, and they would find victory. These beliefs would mean that Cadorna would continue ordering attack after attack, again and again, and in some ways it would be almost worse than those attacks that were happening in the West so far. When things started to go wrong, he would also share other supreme commanders' penchant for firing leaders. During the two years of his command, he would dismiss 217 generals, 255 colonels, and 355 battalion commanders. Quite the trail of dismissals were left in his wake. The absolute power and the method of attack would mean that Cadorna would be blamed for a large amount of the Italian failures during the war. I have poked through a lot of sources for these episodes on Italy, and almost all of them are very negative on Cadorna. Almost all generals have detractors in the historian community, but rarely have I seen them so adamant and repetitive in their criticisms that they lay against Cadorna. Some of the best sources that I have found for the action on the Italian front literally, and I mean literally like literally and not literally like figuratively, spend pages and pages on how horrible Cadorna is. I am personally inclined to in some ways agree with them, especially after the first few months of unsuccessful attacks. But when you look at Cadorna's belief, initially, and the actions, again, initially, they aren't that much different than Joffre's or Haig when he takes over command of the British army. They all kept attacking and attacking, when, in hindsight, we can see that they had no chance of success. The only difference, really, was the terrain in which they fought, which made Cadorna's attacks not just a failure to gain ground, but a failure to gain anything at all. So I guess maybe the best criticism to label against Cadorna... It has nothing to do with his belief in the attack or belief in how he was attacking. It was what everybody was doing. But instead, in his belief that he could attack where he was attacking, in the mountains of Italy. The tool that Cadorna was trying to accomplish his goals with was the Italian army, and it was in a pretty tough spot in 1914. The army had its roots in the army that had unified Italy, and primarily the part of the Army of the Kingdom of Savoy. Since that time, they had faced many challenges that had sapped of any real strength. They had the weakest army of any of the great powers in Europe, even though they had spent more money, percentage-wise, than anybody else in the decade before the war, they were just unable to overcome the decades more of deficiencies that had built up since unification. Most of the army at the time of the war was made up of peasants from the southern areas of Italy and Sicily. These peasants were poorly paid and almost never got any extended leave to go back home. The families that they had left behind also received very little help from the state to make up for the absence of the men. It was somewhat amazing that, given the circumstances, there wasn't a wide-ranging mutiny in the Italian army during the war. This was mostly thanks to Cadorna's draconian disciplinary tactics, which included, and I have this on multiple sources, decimation the old Roman tradition of executing one-tenth of a unit that retreated from battle. The army as a whole was criminally undertrained, and the officers were of very low quality. The only exception to these rules were specialist units like the Alpini, who were specialized mountain troops who were equipped with the best weapons and equipment. The Italian army had some 875,000 men when the war started, but the equipment that they had was in a sorry state. There was just over a 1,000 pieces of artillery, only 120 of which were heavy and so critical, and they had a sum total of 618 machine guns. If the fighting lasted very long at all, they would very quickly run out of ammunition and other critical supplies. One interesting fact about the Italian army at the start of the war was the fact that there was a shortage of horses in the army. There just weren't that many horses in the country, apparently, in general, so the army didn't have much to pull from so they were the first army in Europe to heavily use automobiles in a military capacity. Even with these mechanized means of moving around, mobilization was really slow. It was scheduled to take 23 days, and it would end up taking twice that long, not being completed until mid-July. During that time, more conscripts would be brought in, and their training would begin to be ready to replace any casualties. And they would need that very soon. By the time Cadorna was ready to launch his attacks, he would have about a million men in the north ready to take part in these attacks. They would even outnumber their opponents by 3 to 1 at the beginning of the campaign. And before we talk about exactly what Cadorna was planning to do with these men, let's look at the men who they were going to face. While the Italians were new to the war, the Austrians were grizzled veterans by this stage. They had been fighting a two-front war for almost a year, when Italy came in against them as well. Austria-Hungary was definitely in a bad spot when suddenly they had a third front to defend, and the Polish and Serbian fronts weren't going away anytime soon. Before the declaration of war, the border was held by a few local militia units, training battalions, border guards, and custom officers that were roughly, very roughly, very, very roughly, organized into two divisions. They had been put under the command of a general who was charged with organizing some form of defence along the border, and as the situation with Italy looked more and more towards war, another division was sent in, and then another three. Although this front sucked manpower from the other fronts, it wasn't without at least some benefits. The threat of Italian invasion and the betrayal of a former ally was a morale boost for the troops in the area for the and for the nation as a whole. The ethnicities from within the empire that were not considered top-of-the-line troops in other theaters, would fight harder and with more dedication on the Isonzo than on any other front. For the Slovenes, Dalmatians, and Bosnians who were fighting the Italians, they were fighting for their very homelands. If the Italians were able to push through them, they would find themselves living in Italian territory after the war, and everybody knew it. On the Italian front, roughly 40% of the troops would be of Slavic descent, and to command them would be the highest-ranking Yugoslav in the entire Austro-Hungarian army, a Croatian general named Borovic. Borovic had entered the cadet school at the age of 10, and before the war he had been the commander of Croatia's home guard. Before the fighting started, Conrad had planned to let the Italians advance over the mountains before cutting them off and destroying them. But to make such an operation happen, German troops were needed, which Wolfenheim adamantly refused to give. This is part of the reason that Borovich was given the command of the front, because he had proven to be adept at the defense in the Carpathians against the Russians. On the Italian front, Borovich would be forced into a strictly defensive mindset, and on his first day of command he would issue orders that would be the guiding principle for the defense during the campaign. All positions must be held to the last man. Commanders must allocate all manpower not needed in the front line to the sacred duty of adapting positions so that counter-offensives could be launched. Defenses had to include at least five rows of barbed wire, the first row camouflaged. If the enemy broke through, the defenders must not panic, but stay in their place while reserves were moved forward to contain and reverse the breach. And finally, prisoners should be taken whenever possible to gain information. Borovitch's steadfast belief in not giving a single foot of ground to the enemy would have severe consequences for both sides once the fighting began. In his book Isonzo, The Forgotten Sacrifice of the Great War, John R. Schindler would give these two bits on Borovitch's method of defense. Quote, the essence of Borovitch's scheme, better a wiped-out battalion than a regiment shattered in a counterattack, was simple and deadly. It meant that units were kept in forward positions without relief. Until overwhelmed. End quote. And also, quote, a survivor later recalled a frightful mathematically precise system, a mill that had to grind economically so as not to languish idle. But woe to the battalion caught between the stones. In the months after arriving at the front, but before the Italians attacked, the entire line was frantically fortified to meet the expected advance. Most of the defenses were completed in the northern and central parts of the line, but as the line moved further south, the defenses became less and less impressive. The Austrians also moved as many machine guns and pieces of artillery as they could into the area. Over the first year of the war, they had learned an important lesson, at the cost of two million men, that these tools and not the raw determination of troops won battles. The movement and work at the front didn't stop until the first attacks were launched, and during the period of time between when war was declared and until the first attack, the number of defenders had more than doubled. The Austrians wouldn't be defending right at the border, though. They instead chose to make their stand on the first set of high ground that could be more easily defended. The frontier on which the Austrian troops planned to make their stand put the Italians at a very distinct disadvantage. The territory around the Isonzo River stretched from Mount Ramban in the north in the Julian Alps to the Adriatic Sea 60 miles to the south. This stretch of land, this 60 miles, would be the location of almost all of the action between the Italian and Austrian troops for the entire war. For the purposes of detailing the fighting, and this is pretty typical for all of the historical counts of the action, we will break the region into three distinct areas. In the north was the Julian Alps, the highest mountains in Europe. These mountains would prove to be far more formidable for the troops fighting in them than the Carpathians, which we've spent so much time in already. The tallest mountain in the range is Mount Kern, at 7,410 feet, but they averaged around 3,500 feet, all of which were giant walls of gray limestone. So these aren't just little hills, they aren't even big hills. These are legit mountains, in every sense of the word. The territory would have sorely tested even the best mountaineers, and even though the Italians did have some very good mountain troops, the Alpini, which were recruited from the mountainous regions of Italy, they would still find it very difficult. The two brigades of Alpini, that the Italians had in the beginning of the war, were well trained, with top-of-the-line equipment and even their own mountain artillery to bring to bear against their enemies. Even these troops, maybe the perfect troops for the operation, found it difficult to make any successful attacks across the sparsely covered mountains where the only cover was the damp, clinging mists. In the central region, there were several plateaus, each having its own vertical walls and tops with rocky outcroppings, and then there was also some towns and hills in this region. But to the south of these plateaus was the Carso, which we will spend a very large amount of time on over the coming episodes. I would just let Mark Thompson, from his book The White War, describe the Carso. Quote, The Carso figures in this story as a landscape, a battlefield, practically a character in its own right. It is a triangle of highland with vertices near the hill of San Michel in the north, Trieste in the south, and somewhere around the town of Vipava, deep inside Slovenia to the east. To the south and east, it merges into the limestone ranges that reach into Slovenia and Croatia, and ultimately stretch all the way along the eastern Adriatic coast to Montenegro. In the north, it is bounded by the valley of the river Ripacho, and in the west, however, that is where the Corso shows its most impressive aspect, at first like a bar of cloud on the horizon, and then surging from the ground, End quote the Carso would prove to be an enormous natural fortress, upon which the Italian armies would break. It wasn't just the height of the Carso that was the problem, but it was also crisscrossed by underground rivers, caves, and caverns, which would be used in the defense. These features also drained the area of almost all of its water, which meant that there were very little vegetation. The bleak, rocky landscape that was left was also almost impossible to dig trenches on, Pneumatic drills had to be brought in as the only answer when trying to cut through the hard surface. In the early days, it was all the troops could do to build a shallow trench and pile rocks on top of it. On the Carso, shell bursts would also cause thousands of razor-sharp rock splinters to shoot everywhere. A huge number of casualties early in the war were due to head trauma from these flying shrapnel pieces. After all, these were the days before steel helmets were the norm. The bleak terrain also caused more problems for both sides. There weren't any rails or roads that led up to the front line, and for the most part, they had to traverse mountains to bring material to the front. This meant that it was up to mule teams to traverse the area every night, the only time that they wouldn't be destroyed by artillery. And these were used as the sole method to try and keep the armies fed and fighting. It was in this environment, completely unsuited for any military action, that the two armies would fight for almost three years. Next week, we will begin by discussing what the armies plan to do in this inhospitable region to both attack and defend, before we jump headfirst into what will be the first of 11 battles of the Asanzo. Yes, 11 battles named after the same river, so I'm sure that you can guess how the first 10 are going to go.